Good morning and Boker Tov, and welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. And we have the privilege this week of learning not one Parsha, but two Parshios together, Parshas Chukas and Balak. I want to thank our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, who have sponsored the Parsha series for the year. The year comes to a close now at the end of June. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Nishmas Dove B'Menachem Manish, very grateful to them for their generosity, for their sponsorship, and I hope that our learning throughout the year really not only enriched their lives and your lives with its Torah, but served to elevate the Neshama of Mr. Grossman, who was a very, very special man. I also want to thank the OU for again uh, promoting and sharing our Parsha perspective, and welcome all of our listeners and all those who are participating who found out and came through the uh, through the OU link. Okay, as I said, we have a lot to cover. Two parashiyos, Chukas and Balak. Each one could take five hours. Not to worry. Breathe out. We're not going to spend five hours on each one, but we'll see as far as we get. So if you want to follow along in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, it appears on page 838, at least the beginning of Parshas Chukas does. And here the Pasha begins. Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the Chok of the Torah. And so on and so forth. Here we have the Torah introducing what is known as the quintessential Chok, the paradigmatic, the perfect example, the model of all Chukim. What is a Chok? A Chok is an inexplicable, incomprehensible, unexplainable law. We have laws we understand, we have laws that make sense, we have laws that are rational, we have laws that are enriching because they speak to our intellect, our cognitive ability to understand them. And then we have laws that Hashem says, jump, and we say, how high? We do them without understanding them. We do them simply because He says we have to. The question is, it should say, Zos Chukas, this is the Chok of the Para Aduma. The Para Aduma is the ultimate example of such a law. Not only is it incomprehensible, in fact, it's paradoxical. The pure person who is using the ash of the para aduma to purify the impure person themselves becomes impure. How does it make sense? If the person who's pure is trying to purify the impure, they should remain pure. Why do they themselves become impure? How does the process corrupt them? It makes no sense, none other than Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest, the most brilliant, the greatest genius of all men, said, He said, let me be wise, let me study, let me analyze, let me dissect, let me plumb the depths to try to understand what it means. Nevertheless, it remained elusive. He was unable to understand. He was unable to be able to comprehend. So why isn't the Pasha introduced specifically, this is the Chok of the Para Aduma? Why is it this is the Chok of the Torah? And the answer is, this is the essence of our Parsha as a whole. Our Parsha talks to us about what happens when we don't understand. You know, Judaism is such a beautiful religion. It teaches us and it trains us to ask questions. It's not afraid. It doesn't fear the questions. We're supposed to challenge. We're supposed to seek to understand. We're supposed to peel back and unravel. We're supposed to ask. And yet, what happens when you run into a wall? What happens when you hit a roadblock? What happens when you have tried all you can and yet you cannot understand? And that's true both in the area of halacha, it's true in the area of Jewish law, and it's true equally and even more difficultly sometimes in the area of not law, but the area of life. And that is the theme of our Pasha. This is not just the chok of the para aduma. This is the chok of life itself. Let's start by looking at Rabbi Soloveitchik's insight. Rabbi Soloveitchik on these words writes the following. 
Zos Chukas HaTorah. Chukim are classified by our rabbis as unintelligible, enigmatic, mysterious. It's forbidden to ask the reason pertaining to certain divine categorical imperatives, but we should inquire the interpretation of the law. There's a difference between explanation and interpretation. And listen to how he compares it, as only the Rav could. He says, take physics, for example. Physics does not ask why. In science, you don't ask why. Because why is not a scientific question. It's a metaphysical question, not a physics question. There can be no scientific why for water freezes 32 degrees Fahrenheit or light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Asking why God issued certain commandments is seeking to comprehend the unfathomable. Man must recognize that the ultimate reason for mitzvahs is beyond his grasp. The very question of why in regard to mitzvah observance is philosophically invalid. So the Ruff says the physicist, the scientist who's studying science so tries to understand, of course, you try to understand the secrets, the mysteries of the universe. You try to explain why things happen the way they do. What are the formulas and what are the, what are the uh, uh, physics to be able to explain the phenomena, the natural phenomena in our world? Of course, that's the whole mission. That's the whole goal of the scientist. But the scientist never asks why. Well, why does water freeze at that level? And why does gravity make things fall? And why does light travel at that speed? Because those are questions that have no answer. They don't interest the scientist. You're not able to discover them. You're not able to measure them. You can't provide a hypothesis, evidence, or proof for them. And the same is true when it comes to mitzvahs. Says Rabbi Salavichik, 600 Tariag mitzvahs, 613 mitzvahs are no less than the rules of physics. Yes, we dissect them, we analyze them, we interpret them, we explain them. But we don't ask the why. A tam ha-mitzvah, we try to discover the tam. I've shared many times, we have the same word. Tam means both reason, and the word tam also means taste. Why do we have the same? Did we run out of words? Why do we have the same word to describe taste and reason? The answer is, I need to eat in order to live. So why not just subsist on the minimum? Have bread and water. I could live on bread and water. The answer is, once I need to eat to live, I might as well eat with a taste. It might as well have a flavor. I might as well enjoy it. And the same is true with mitzvos. I need to observe and perform mitzvos to spiritually live. But once I'm doing it, I might as well give them a flavor and a taste which will enhance it. What if you don't taste? Chas v'shalom, someone comes down with coronavirus, they lose their sense of taste. Do they not eat for the next few days? Of course they have to eat. If you don't eat, you're going to die, whether you taste the food or not. And the same is true spiritually. Whether you taste what you're eating spiritually, whether you discover the ta'am, the reason or not, you nevertheless need to continue to observe. So yes, we look to understand. But like the scientist, the physicist, we don't get stuck on the why. When we ask why in the context of human activity, we are truly asking what motivated him. Motivation carries an implication of an unrealized need. But with regard to the divine, to Hashem, it's impossible to ascribe motivation to God. He has neither needs or deficiencies. So in response to the question of why Hashem created the world, we cannot answer it's because He's kind and wanted to bestow goodness. This assertion implies Hashem had some vague need to do good. The only acceptable answer to the question is, He willed it. As Rashi comments on the Pasuk, hi milfanai. It's a It is a decree. God ordained it. We don't ask why. We can't understand why. We'll never know the why. We just know His will. But the question of what can be asked. What is the meaning of this chok as far as I'm concerned? What does the chok tell me? One does not ask why God legislate paraduma or does it purify the ritually defiled, but one can ask, what is its spiritual message to me? How can I, as a thinking and feeling person, assimilate it into my world outlook? I don't get stuck. I don't get stuck. I don't get debilitated on the why. But yet I'm motivated, I'm pushed, I aspire to ask the what. What does it mean for me? How will my life be different? How can I be inspired? What will change? The Avodah Shebelev, 
The avodah shabalev must be present in every religious act and the ritual as well as the as well as the moral. Although the kiyam hamitzvah can be achieved through a mechanical approach, avodah elokim means not only to discharge the duty but to enjoy, rejoice, and and love the mitzvah. But the avodah elokim is unattainable if the chok does not deliver any message to us. So. When one looks at a mitzvah and says, I can't understand it, like Shlomo Amelech, I'm no smarter, I'm no wiser, I'm no greater. If he got stuck, certainly I'm stuck. It's not a reason to walk away or to give up. It's a reason to double down, but not on the why, on the what. What is it meant to teach me? How is it meant to change my life? We have no right to explain chukim, but we have a duty to interpret chukim. What does the mitzvah mean to me? How am I to understand its essence as an integral part of my service to Hashem? We do not know why the mitzvah was formulated, but the question of how I can integrate and assimilate the mitzvah into my total religious consciousness, world outlook, and eye awareness, that question is not only permissible, but it is one that we are duty-bound to ask. I know I'm speaking very quickly. You don't have to write it in the chat or send me an email, but it's a double parsha. What can I do? It's a double parsha, and you only give me an hour. If you gave me the whole day or the whole week, I would be able to speak a lot slower, but alas, you don't. That is the insight of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik says, don't get stuck on the why, like the physicist doesn't ask why, ask the what, and that's what it means, zos chukas, and the reason that it's zos chukas a Torah, not just zos chukas of the mitzvah of para aduma, because this is the essence of Torah. You see, it's our attitude towards chukim, that reveals our attitude towards mishpatim. Mishpatim are rational mitzvahs. They make sense. They're logical. They're rational. I understand them. Even human beings might have come up with them. So why am I doing them? Am I doing them because they make sense to me? Or am I doing them because gzeira milfanai, they're the will of Hashem? You see, if I'm only willing to do what I understand, and I'm unwilling to do that which I don't understand, then it reveals my very motivation and agenda in all that I do. Our relationship with Hashem is no different than our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with the Almighty. With, with uh, our relationship with the Almighty, sorry, is no different than our relationship with our spouse in the human realm. So imagine I tell my spouse, my spouse says to me, would you do X, Y, or Z? I'm very concerned, I'm very nervous, I'm very anxious, it's an awkward time. And if you did A, B, and C, it'd make me feel more calm. And I say, that makes no sense. That's irrational. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense to me. No. I'm only willing to do your needs, the things that you want, that reconcile and integrate with what makes sense to me. But the things that you ask for that make no sense to me, God bless, good luck, you're on your own. How would that relationship would look? What would be the nature of that marriage? The fabric, the foundation of a marriage is when I say, you know what, you've said it 15 times, I still don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the why, but okay, it's what you want, it's what you will. If it matters to you, it matters to me. And when a person is willing to invest in, and a person is willing to selflessly pursue the chok, that which does not, does not uh, conform with their understanding, it reveals that even the mishpatim, even that which they understand that they pursue, is also for the right reason, is also for a meaningful and enriching reason. And that's what the Rav is saying. Zos chukas, not just para aduma, but the attitude to the para aduma, zos chukas, hatorah. The attitude to the para aduma, in fact, reveals and reflects our whole attitude to all of Torah and to all of observance. The Heligas Fasemes, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Migur, has a different interpretation. Zos chukas hatorah. He says, he says that zos chukas Torah. This is not just a chok of the para aduma. This is in fact zos chukas of the whole Torah. Why? Because it takes us all the way back to the beginning of Torah. You see, our attitude towards and our performance of even a chok repairs the damage that was done at the very beginning of the Torah. What was the damage that was done at the very beginning of the Torah? So says the Ger Rebbe. Says this Fasemes. What was the first mistake? You know, if it weren't for the mistake of Chava, of Adam, if it weren't for the mistake of, of going after the Eitz Hadas, we would still be in Gan Eden. 
all you could eat, smorg, barbecue, midnight buffet. Women would not have to have pain in childbirth. There would be no gestational period. There'd be no need for the epidural. We men wouldn't have to go work the sweat of our brow. Our bank accounts would be overflowing and the buffet would be overflowing and there'd be no social distancing and no coronavirus. And we would be, we'd feel a little breeze, it'd be a little cool. We wouldn't have clothing, but it would be this ideal existence. But alas, what happened? There was a mistake in judgment. I'm not blaming anyone, Chava's fault. I'm not blaming anyone, but it began the Nachash enticed Chava, who enticed Adam, and the next thing you know, we're on the outs. Why? What was the whole source of this? So the Pasuk says, How did the Nachash entice? How did he seduce? How did he persuade Chava? It's okay, touch it, eat it, it's not a problem. He said the day you eat it, you will gain wisdom, you'll open your eyes, and you're going to be smart. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll have a sense of consciousness. You'll have a conscience. You'll know the difference between right and wrong. That was the first mistake. The first mistake was this goal of understanding. The first mistake was thinking you were capable of differentiating, of distinguishing, of thinking, of understanding. So said the Geir Rebbe, said the Svas Emes, the bitel sichlo shel adam, the kiyum chukei Torah. When a person says, "You know what? I'm nullifying my need to understand. I am submitting myself to you. I'm not trying to be yodea tovara. I'm not trying to conquer and understand. I'm not willing to only be obedient to observe that which I understand." When you say jump, God, I say how high. It's all about you and your dominion over me. I'm not trying to compete ke'elokim, yodea tovara. You're the only elokim. When I mevat on my das, when I submit that I'm willing to do even that which I don't understand, it is the tikkun, it is the kapara, it is the repair. It is fixing the mistake and where we went wrong with the sin of the Eitz Hadas. So said the Ger Rebbe, that's why Zos Chukas, not just the chok of the para aduma, this is the chukas hatorah, because we go all the way back in time and we repair that very first mistake, that first mistake of the, of the Torah. You also see this, you also see this, why Parshas Chukas comes right after Korach. Because Korach too said, Kola kulam kedoshim, I want equal access. Everybody's capable of understanding, everybody knows I want equal access. And the answer is there are some things you can't understand. There are some things that you don't know. There are some things that are beyond your comprehension. You cannot and you will not know it. And I want to suggest, based on an insight that also comes from a sefer, Ateris Mordechai. The Ateris Mordechai is Rav Mordechai uh, Rogev. And uh, I'm grateful to my chaver, Rav Moshe Tzvi, for sharing the source. Last year he mentioned it in the shir, the Ateris Mordechai, who has the following suggestion. He says part of this, but I want to add to it and expand on it in my own, in my own way, in the following context, in the following context. Our parsha begins with the story of the Paraduma, the red cow, the perfectly red cow. It has to have never worked. It has to have no, it has to be perfectly red. It can't even have other extraneous hairs. It can't have a mum, a blemish. And then you burn it and you take the ash of it in a mixture. It's sprinkled on the person who is impure. And in that process, they become, they become pure. That's the first part of the Parsha. And then the Parsha turns to one of the most mysterious, one of the most enigmatic, inexplicable sections, narratives of our entire Torah. We are 38 years, 38 years of the 40 years of wandering the desert has passed in our Parsha. It's amazing. From Sefer Shmos all the way to Bamidbar, all the way to Korach is two years. And now in Chukas, fast forward, expedite. 
You know, you can listen to a shir on double speed, triple speed. Well, Jewish people went on quadruple speed. 38 years went flying by in one parsha in Chukas. And in our parsha, we have this mysterious mitzvah of the Parah Aduma. And then a few passages later, we have the story of Moshe and hitting the rock. We've examined this in depth in the past. And uh, there's many, many explanations which are offered. The Ramam says Moshe gave in to anger. He gave in to rage. He acted out against the Jewish people. He gave in to his urge to uh, castigate them and criticize them. He couldn't take them. They're an incorrigible people who complain and they're ingrateful and he just can't take it anymore. He gave in to that sense of anger and the Rambam says for that Moshe was accountable. He couldn't lead them into Israel. And others give many, 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 many different explanations and answers of what Moshe did wrong. We suggested our own one year that in fact it wasn't a punishment. It was a description of reality. I'm not going to review the whole thing, but I'll give you a little bit of a hint. What's a little bit of the hint? When God first recruits Moshe to be a leader, what does God say to him? I want you to come lead the people. I'm appointing you to lead. And what is Moshe's response? He demurs. He hesitates. He says, no, I'm not qualified. I'm inadequate. Why? Lo'ish divarim anochi. I'm not a man of words. Fast forward 38, many more than 38 years later, and God says to Moshe, Moshe, have you learned to communicate? Have you become an orator? Have you mastered the power of persuasion and speech? Vidibartem elasela. I want you to speak to the rock. And Moshe does what? He doesn't speak to the rock. The Maharal says speech is the bridge between the physical and the spiritual. Moshe is so great, so spiritual, that he is transcendent above the power of speech. He doesn't know how to live and operate in the physical. So Moshe was the quintessential leader. Moshe was the perfect choice to lead us through the, Miz, the Minbar, through a desert lifestyle, through a time when we had the Man and the Be'er were protected by the clouds, when we were living this Kola life and everything was provided for us and we didn't need anything else, Moshe was the leader. But they're about to go into Eretz Yisrael, a land of mitzvahs, hatiluyos, ba'arts. They're about to need to bridge heaven and earth. Eretz Yisrael is the bridge of heaven and earth. It's the place where soil, earth, we perform mitzvahs through it. And so, Moshe, God says, are you ready? Have you learned how to bridge heaven and earth? Have you learned the power of speech? And Moshe does not speak to the rock. He hits it instead. And so I've argued that it's not a punishment that Moshe can't go into Israel. It's simply a description of a reality. The reality is he was the perfect leader for the Dordea, for the Midbar. He was the perfect leader for the desert lifestyle. But the going into Israel, you have to set up a judicial system, a police force, an agricultural society, a stock market. You have to set up businesses and commerce and transportation and government. Uh, uh, Israel, where you have to begin to integrate and build a bridge, heaven and earth, Moshe is no longer the right person. But it's very interesting, there are countless explanations which are offered. So many were the hypotheses that the 19th century Italian commentator of Shmuel David Luzzato said, quote, Moshe committed one sin, yet the commentators have accused him of 13 or more, each inventing some new iniquity. Moshe did one mistake, but we've come up with many, many more. In fact, there's a Sefer Shari Aaron, and I looked in Shari Aaron, and there are no less than 25 different explanations of what Moshe did. Poor Moshe, one mistake. This incredible leader who literally saved the Jewish people, he made one mistake. But instead of putting him in the books for one mistake, the Shari Aaron has no less than 25 suggestions of what he did wrong. And what I want to suggest to you is stop looking. Stop trying to explain. And this is what the Ateris Mordechai says, again, in a little bit of a different context, but expanding on it for my own. And he says, you know what the theme of our Pasha is? What do the Para Aduma and the story of the May Mariva, Moshe hitting the rock instead of speaking to it, what do they have in common? And you know what the answer is? Let me read to you the, the words of the Ateris Mordechai. He says, <speaking in Hebrew> 
there are chukim in laws and there are chukim in life. Why was Moshe not allowed in? I don't know. He davened ve'eschanan 515 times. He wasn't answered. Why not? The great Moshe, when he advocated and davened for the people, he was answered. Why wasn't he answered for himself? You know what? It's a chok. Sometimes in life there are chukim. Why is there a virus? And why did some people lose their life? And why are some struggling and others seem protected? And why are some regions, the data spiking and other places, they seem they're going back to normal? Sometimes in life, one has to throw up their arms and say, you know what? It's a chok. It's a chok. I'm trying so hard to understand, but not everything do we have access to. Not everything are we capable of understanding. Not everything will we understand. It was Korach's mistake. Korach is followed by Parshas Chukas. And Chukas begins with the Paraduma, but it ends with Memoriva. Because like there are Chukim in laws, there are Chukim also in life. And that's the message of our Parsha. It's what it's telling us. With all due respect to the 25 different reasons which are suggested and offered, the answer is, you know why Moshe wasn't allowed in? Why was he punished? Why was the punishment so severe? Because sometimes there's a chok not only in law, there's a chok sometimes in life. Be humble. Be humbled to realize that we're not capable of understanding everything. To think that I'm capable and I deserve and I'm entitled to understand everything is arrogance. It's the epitome of arrogance. You know, to, to believe in God is not only to believe that there is a God, but to accept that we won't understand everything. Because if we could understand everything, then we would be God. We're not competing with God. That's what the Sfasem has said. The Heligah Sfasem has said, this is the Tikkun for the Eitzadas. The Eitzadas, we said, we want to be Kelokim, Yodea Tovara. But you know what? To be a religious personality means to submit. Submission. Footnote 4 of Halachic Man, whereby Soloveitchik talks about that religious man, religion at its core, he defines religion. Religion means submission. You see, we, we live in a time, and we're living in a generation that says, you know what religion is? Spirituality. And I moved, and my soul is on fire, and love, and kumzits, and meditation, and it's bodhisattva. And you know me, you know that I believe in all of those things as much as anyone else, and I'm working on all of those things. But you have to understand that as beautiful as that is, spirituality, and music, and kumzits, and it's bodhisattva, and meditation, and every mitzvah, the deep reason, oh, wow. it's all beautiful. But at its core, you know what religion is? At its core, religion is submission. At its core religion is, I don't only observe, and I don't only follow, and I don't only stick with you, and I don't only see you when it's all good, but I stick with you, and I see you, and I submit to you, even or especially when I can't understand. Mishpatim are lovely, but ultimately the evidence of the uh, genuineness of our relationship with Hashem is not in our observance and acceptance of mishpatim, but rather it's in chukim. And that's why it's zos chukas ha-Torah. This is the chok of a Torah, not just Zos Chukas, not just Zos Chukas of the Para Aduma, but Zos Chukas HaTorah. And I want to extend this theme. I know we usually give a lot of Divrei Torah, and we're going to start that in a moment, but I want to just share with you this, this theme that is pervasive throughout this parsha of Chukas. It's called Chukas for this reason. And even though, arguably, it belongs elsewhere, maybe in Vayikra, where we have Karbanos, maybe the law of the Paraduma, we have Tuma and Tara in Vayikra, why isn't it there? It's here, because it's in the middle of the book of Bamidbar, when we have an adolescent nation developing with rebelliousness, seeking to understand now is specifically why it's placed here. By the way, Rashi at the beginning of the parsha tells us, Zos Chukas HaTorah, that this is, the, um, this is the antidote and the repair for what? The Cheta Egel. Let the mother come and clean up for her calf. Let the mother come and clean up for her calf. What does that mean? Is it just a cute play on words? Para, Aduma, the cow, and Egel, the calf? Just cute, these animals are related to one another? Of course not, it means so much deeper. 
the Kuzari, the great Kuzari, Rav Yudah Levi, says, what was the mistake of the Chet Egel after all? Moshe disappears on top of the mountain, and the Jewish people say, how are we meant to connect to God? We need something tangible. We need something palpable. We need something we can hold, we can look at, we can feel, we can smell, we can listen to. We need something. We want to understand. We want to connect. We want to do it our way. And God says, you know, that may be a legitimate need, and I'll give you a mishkan to fill it, but... You can't do it your way. You're not capable of understanding. You're not omnipotent and infinite. You're limited and finite. To be religious, to have a relationship with me, says God, means the willingness to submit, the willingness to concede, the willingness to admit that you're not God. And therefore, you have to do it my way. That's why the Beis HaLevi writes, the parshas of, of Truma Tetzava are repeated. Vayaka Pekudei. You have Truma Tetzava, the laws of the Meshkan. Then you have Kisisa, the Chet Egel, And then you have Vayaka Pekudei. The difference, says the Beis HaLevi, is in Vayaka Pekudei, you have Kashatziv HaShem Lokecha. Over and over again, you have as God commanded, as God commanded, as God commanded. Because the, the lesson of the Chet Egel is, you're not capable of understanding. You cannot innovate and invent there's not room for entrepreneurship in religion. God says there's 613 mitzvos. Now, yes, there's religious creativity, and yes, there's poetic creativity, and yes, there's romantic creativity in this loving relationship we have with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, of course, and yes, but fundamentally it begins with a commitment to Tariyag mitzvahs, the 613 mitzvahs, they're non-negotiable. They're from Him. We don't try to modify them. We don't try to change them or adapt them based on our own intellect. It is submission to Him. And that's what it means. Let the mother of the paraduma come and clean up for the Egel. The Egel's mistake was you thought you could understand everything. You thought you were in charge. You made a mistake with the Chayta Egel. It was a costly mistake. And you know what the antidote, you know what the response is? Para aduma. Let the mother come and clean up for the calf, clean up for the calf. You see this as well. Again, we're given this whole theme. So much more to get to. But you see this as well towards the end of Parshas Chukas. What's at the end of Parshas Chukas? The Jewish people are ready to go through the land of Sichon and Og. Uh, they send emissaries, ambassadors to Sichon. Said, can we pass through your land? A shortcut. We're on our way. We're not going to touch anything. We won't violate. We won't compromise. We won't touch your resources. Can we just cut through? They wouldn't allow it. And so on. So there's a battle and there is a fight. And what happens? The Jewish people, we killed them with sword, we took possession of the land. And to the children of Ammon, ki az gvul b'nei Ammon. The border of the children of Ammon is powerful. On page 852 in the article Stone Chumash, the end of Parshat Chukas, Perak Chaf Aleph, I just read to you Pasuk Chaf Dalid. What's going on over here? Sichon and Ammon prevent the Jews from entering. So they go to war with Sichon, but not Ammon. Why don't they go to the war with Ammon? They go to war with Sichon, they triumph over Sichon, they eliminate Sichon. What happened to Ammon? Ammon equally egregiously does not allow the Jewish people to pass through their land. Why does Ammon get a free pass? So the Pasuk tells us why. You know why? Ki az gavul b'nei Ammon. Because the border of Ammon is incredibly powerful. So now tell me, what does it mean that they're incredibly powerful? What is the Torah telling us? What is the Torah testifying to us? Ki az gavul b'nei Ammon. The border of Ammon is so powerful. What's so powerful? It's fortified, militarily, it's got uh, incredible weapons, it's got amassed an enormous army. What is so powerful that Az 
ki az gvur bnei Amon. So Rashi here says, umahu chesko, what is the strength of, of this border? What is the strength of this boundary that you can't pass through it? Says Rashi, because later in Dvarim, God reveals to us that he told us that the Jewish people were not allowed to harass or wage war against Ammon. So, you know what the strength of Ammon was? Because God said no. That was its strength. Isn't that amazing, Rashi? My brother called my attention to this Rashi many, many years ago. My brother pointed out, what Rashi's telling us is, the strength of that boundary, that border, was not its military, was not its army. You know what the strength was? God said no. And when God says no, the answer is no. It's a non-negotiable and it's a non-debatable. To Moshe, Hashem's word is a reality. Ki az amon. God said no, so the boundary was strong. There's nothing to talk about. It's a non-negotiable. So I remember many years ago when he told me that insight in this Rashi, it occurred to me. You ever go to the supermarket? Remember when you can go to the supermarket? You ever go to the supermarket with your child? Let's say, and, and you know, the, the people who design the layout of a supermarket are not dumb. There's tremendous chachmah. There's a whole wisdom to the design of a supermarket. They don't put the milk in the front when you first walk into a supermarket. You know why? Because the milk is a staple. You have to get milk. They put it all the way the farthest point from the entrance because you'll have to pass a lot of other things and you'll fill your cart with things you don't need on your way in and on your way out. So by design, the milk is the furthest from the entrance of the supermarket because they want you to have to pass everything and be enticed by everything and buy things that you don't need and you don't want. There's a chachma, there's a wisdom. Part of that wisdom, it's a cruel, absolutely cruel wisdom, cruel wisdom, is at the checkout line, what is there a wall of opposite the conveyor belt of the checkout line? There is a wall of candy. And why do they put that there? Again, you're waiting in line, the people in front of you, it's taking a while, and you're, you're hungry, you're tired, your guard is down, you're gonna grab for the candy, you're gonna stuff it on, on the, in the cart or on the conveyor belt. So if you've ever been to the supermarket with your young child, and your young child starts you know, pulling on your pant leg or on your skirt, pulling on your arm, starts fetching, I want the candy, I want the candy. I want the candy. I'm dying for candy. I want candy. They take the candy, and you don't want to give them the candy. Now, there's two things you can say. If you say to the child, um, not two things you could say, but there's two options of what kind of candy they're asking for. If you say, well, you can't have the candy. You haven't eaten dinner yet. Candy's going to cause cavities. We don't need the candy. It's overpriced and it's expensive. Is your child going to stop crying? A Jewish Torah Dika observant child, will they stop crying? In most cases, in my experience with several children, the answer is no. If you tell them that it's going to cause your teeth to fall out and rot, if you tell them it's overexpensive, if you tell them you don't have dinner yet, that's not... No, but I want to have a cry. Why? Because children are very smart. They're almost as smart as the people who design supermarkets. And they know that they're going to beat you out. If they can just cry longer, they're going to wear you down till you can't take it. You're embarrassed. You're humiliated. You're going to give it and give them the candy. But what happens when you turn to that same child and you say, because it's true, I'm not suggesting you lie, but you say, the candy that you're crying about and holding, you can't have it. Why? because it's not kosher. You know what that child does? Three, four, five years old, they look at you and they say, okay, and they put it back on the shelf. Why? Why is it when you say it's not kosher, they put it back on the shelf, but when you say it's gonna make your teeth fall out and you didn't eat dinner yet and it's too expensive, they try to wear you down, they're gonna cry their eyes out. The answer is ki az gvul b'nei amon. This is what Moshe was telling us, is when Hashem says something, the core of why we do it is not, I need to understand it, and why, you know, according to many, kashras is a chok. 
there are different offer, uh, explanations which are offered for why we keep kosher, but some suggest in the end of the day that kashrus itself is a chok. Ultimately, kashrus is a chok. So if the child says, well, I want to understand it. No, the child says, oh, it's not kosher? Never mind, and puts it back. Ki az b'nei amon. So you see this notion of zos chukas ha-Torah. Just those three words that begin our parsha. Zos chukas ha-Torah. This is the chok of the whole Torah. This is the chok of the Torah. It's not just the chok of the para aduma. It is the chok of the whole Torah. It is teaching us an attitude towards religious life. Submission to concede, to admit we're not capable of understanding. We're not entitled to understand. We have no expectation of understanding. Like the physicist, we're not getting stuck on the why, but we're asking the what. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? How can I live the most virtuous life from it? Zos chukas Torah. Zos chukas Torah. This is the paraduma. This is why it's not here in, why is it not in Vayikra, Tumah Vitara? Why is it here? Why is it after Korach? How does it repair for the Chet Egel? How does it repair for the Eitz Adas? How does it connect to the second half of the Parsha of Moshe hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock? How does it connect to the story of Sichon of, of uh, Amon, the fact that we can't penetrate their border, Ki Azgvul? The answer to all those questions is the notion of the Chok, which is at the core of what it means to live a, what it means to live a religious life. Okay, let's keep going. Now I got to do some triage and figure out where we're going, but let's keep going. Perak Yates, Pasuk Vav. In the context of the Paraduma, we're trying to purify the impure. Perak Yates, Pasuk Vav, says the following. The process of the purifying is that the Kohen takes cedar wood, eight Erez, and Ezov, Hesep, Ushnitolas, a crimson thread, and throws it into the burning of the cow, this mixture, this funny recipe, these ingredients. You could beat Bobby Flay with this recipe. He's never tried this one before. The paraduma, you throw it all in, you sprinkle it on the impure person, they become pure, the pure person himself becomes impure. Why are these specifically the ingredients that are chosen? What is the lesson? What is the message? So Rashi here explains that each component of the purification process, they're not, um, they're not random, but they are by design. Why specifically are these the ingredients that are chosen? So Rashi tells us. Rashi tells us. Where is this Rashi? Oh. It should be pure. We have to be pure. And Rashi says here that uh, each aspect of the mitzvah connects with and rectifies the mistake of the golden calf, the cheta ego, we explained it in the intellectual sense of needing to understand everything. The cedar, the eight eras, a cedar tree, is the tallest of all of the trees. A cedar tree is a tall, sturdy, firm tree. The hyssop, the azov, is the lowest of all the trees, a little lowly bush. And says Rashi, this symbolizes that the haughty, arrogant person, how did they get impure? How does one become impure in life, contaminated by life? When a person's arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic, self-centered, that person needs to be sprinkled by an azov. They need to be sprinkled by something which is lowly, something which is humble, something that's going to bring them down and make them more modest. Revolba, expanding on this Rashi, Revolba says in a Shi'ure Chumash on our Parsha, Revolba says, you see at the core of every mistake, at the core of all contamination, at the core of all impurity, at the core of all corruption, is the ego, is arrogance. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, that um, anytime a person makes a mistake, they're arrogant. We know humble people that make mistakes. 
Arrogance here doesn't mean that the person needs to be the loudest in the room or garner all the attention of the room. Arrogance in this context means that they're driven by their ego. They're driven by their needs. They're driven by putting themselves first. They're incapable of being disciplined. They're incapable of quieting the voice of their own, of their own needs, of their own needs. So a similar idea is conveyed when the Torah describes Ben Israel complained about the man. Hashem sent them the slav, the quail, as a punishment. And he said that they would eat it until it comes out of their noses, until they're disgusted, because you've disgusted Hashem who's in your midst. And Rashi there says, Hashem was telling them that were it not for the fact that I dwelled among you, you wouldn't have become conceited and sinned. It was their haughtiness that brought them to sin. So when a person is arrogant and haughty, when a person thinks that they're all that and all capable, that is the beginning of the end. Gaiva is what undoes it all. That arrogance, that gaiva, that arrogance is the underlying uh, feature that brings about our demise. And that's what's going on over here. Rashi says specifically why the eight errors, why it is that. Moving right along. Zos, we have a very similar language. The parsha begins, Zos chukas ha-Torah, and now we have Zos ha-Torah, Adam ki yamas ba-ohel. This is the law of the Torah, Adam ki yamas ba-ohel, kol ha-ba-ohel, chosher ba-ohel, yitma shivas yamim, we're talking about the laws of impurity, how a person becomes contaminated by the negative energy of a corpse. This is the teaching regarding a person who would die in a tent, page 840 in the Arts Scroll Stone Pasuk Yud Dalad. Here again, Rabbi Salavechik jumps in with beautiful insight. It says Rabbi Salavechik, he says, interpreting this phrase homiletically, Resh Lakish, the Gemara Brachos on Daf Samach Gimel explains, Zos Torah Adam Ki Yamas Ba'ohel. A person, if you want the Torah, Talmud Torah to be Miskayim, a person who studies Torah, you're coming to the Pasha class, beautiful, you're logged in, Zoom, YouTube, Facebook, Torah, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg.org, wherever you're listening, live, recorded, one speed, two speed, triple speed, but you're learning Torah. How are you Mekayim the Torah? How do you make it last? How do you imbibe it? How do you absorb it? How does it become part of you? Says the, says the Gemara in Brachos, Rish Lakish, only Mishin Memis Atzmo Allah. Only a person who's Memis Atzmo on it. You have to apply yourself. You have to toil. You have to work. You know, no pain, no gain. Jack LaLanne, you have no pain, no gain. If you, don't make, if you don't work for something, then you don't really acquire it. So I have to tell you, by the way, this Parsha class is beautiful. And I'm so glad you're listening. I'm not sitting here by myself. But it's passive listening. You're listening. Even if you're taking notes, some of you I see are taking notes. Kola kavod, I'm honored. Even if you're taking notes, it's passive learning. You got to open a chumash. You got to read it inside. You got to break your teeth. You got to struggle. You got to toil. The things we work for are the things that we most acquire. They are the things that most transform us. By the way, the Bali Musar point out that Rish Lakish says, when is it that Torah lasts? When is it that we truly acquire it in a meaningful and lasting way? Because it's learned, Zosa Torah, Adam ki yamuz ba'ohel. Ohel is the Ohel of Torah. Ohel is the tent of Torah, like Yaakov dwells in the tent of Torah. The Ohel is the tent of Torah. Adam ki yamuz ba'ohel. Zosa Torah. If you want Zosa Torah, Adam ki yamuz ba'ohel. You have to be willing to die for it. But the Balai Musr say, it doesn't mean you have to be willing to want it so bad and work for it so hard that you're willing to die for it. By the way, it's true. If you watch these motivational YouTube videos, I don't care whether it's an athlete or whether it's a business icon or whether it's someone who broke through in any arena and they'll talk about they were in the gym before and they stayed in the gym after and they worked harder and they put in more hours. Whatever it is you want, you whatever you really want the most, you got to be willing to kill yourself. That's the lush and the language and the vernacular we, we use. Someone's willing to kill themselves for it and kill themselves over it. So Adam Kiyamas Ba'ohel, the oil of Torah, you have to be an Adam Kiyamas. You have to be willing to die for it. 
So the Gemara Brachas, Reish Lakish says, Memis Atzmo Aleha. You know how you acquire Torah? Like we just said from Revolba about the Azov, about the Hyssop. Why was the Hyssop used? You were in eight eras. You think that you're such a mighty, tall, arrogant, haughty, self-centered, narcissistic, uh, arrogant person. You became contaminated. We got to sprinkle you with a little modesty, a little humility. Zos chukas Torah, mishememis. What do you have to kill? The atzmo, the sense of arrogance. Atzmo means the sense of I, the sense of ego. You only really acquire Torah when you're memis the atzmo, when you're willing to kill the sense of I, the ego, Allah, in it. In a dis- different passage, Rabbi Salvech continues, in Pirkei Avos, we read, such is the way of Torah. We read in Pirkei Avos, this is the way of Torah. And mayim, water in small measures, drink and sleep on the ground and a life of deprivation. That's how you toil in Torah. That's how you toil in Torah. So uh, in Pirkei Avos, it deals with the necessity for material denial to attain greatness in Torah. And Rish Lakish refers to spiritual self-sacrifice. In order to merit greatness in Torah, you have to be ready during a Torah discussion to endure embarrassment by immediately admitting that you're wrong when such an admission is warranted. So in Pirkei Avos, it's talking about that if you really want to break through with Torah greatness, you have to be willing to be mistapik b'mu'ah. You have to be willing to live with little. And that's why classically in yeshivas we say, you know, a person, the, the, the yeshiva bachar, has to be willing to live with very little. The one who broke out of that mold was Rav Meir Shapiro. Rav Meir Shapiro, the great founder of yeshivas Chachmei Lublin, was the first to say, people shouldn't sleep on a bench. They shouldn't have to beg for their meals. They shouldn't have to live in a, in a shlaki based medrash. Anyone who's been to the yeshivas Chachmei Lublin in uh, Lublin in Poland, knows the Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin is a beautiful edifice. It's a magnificent yeshiva. It had a dormitory. It was the first of its kind of a modern yeshiva with a dormitory and a cafeteria and a magnificent base medrash. I, how did he understand this Mishnah and Avos that says that in order to break through in Torah, you have to be mistapik b'mu'ah? So Mayor Shapiro read it, he punctuated it differently. And he said, this is a life of Torah? That pas b'melech tochal? All you're going to eat is bread and water? No! That's not a life of Torah. He punctuated the Mishnah differently to come to a different conclusion. Rabbi Salvechik is saying here that the Mishnah and Avos and Rish Lakish's understanding of our Pasuk are not in conflict. One is talking about being mistapik b'mu'at in the physical sense, but, but here, Misha Memes Atzmo Aleha is talking about in the spiritual sense. If you really want to grow and you want to discover truth, you have to be so humble that you're willing to become embarrassed over it. And the Rav shared a story about his Zayda, about his grandfather. Said the Rav, when my grandfather, Reb Chaim, applied to become Rosh Hashiva in Velozhin, many great rabbis opposed him because they disagreed with his unique method of Talmudic analysis. As part of the process of being considered for the position, he delivered a lengthy shir in the Velozhin based Medrash. At one point, he abruptly stopped the lecture, indicating he just then remembered a passage in the Perish Mishnayis of the Rambam, which conflicted with his thesis, which was based on the Mishnah Torah. The skeptics were so impressed with Reb Chaim's ability to admit his mistake, he was offered the position immediately. Mishememis atzmo aleha means that, you know, you see this, sometimes in any debate, in any conversation, people become so entrenched in their position that even when they're disproved, they nevertheless cling to their mistake because they're so entrenched, their ego is now so intertwined with the position that they took. Mishamemis Atzmaullah means you have to be willing to be embarrassed or humbled. You have to be willing to let go if you're going to discover the truth, not to cling to your not to cling to your positions. Okay, let's keep going. Oi, so much, so much to talk about. What should we do next? The Be'er of Miriam. Let's talk about the Be'er of Miriam for a moment. Perachov Pasak Aleph. Miriam, Miriam Hanavia, the great prophetess, 
Miriam, the beautiful woman, inside and outside, who saved the Jewish people. She saved her brother. She dies. She's buried. And what does the Torah tell us immediately afterwards? Miriam's gone. Miriam dies. And with her goes their water source. So what happens? The people are incredibly thirsty. Now they confront Moshe and they say, What happened? Why did you take us? Why did, where's our water? We're surely going to die. What's the connection between Miriam's death? And the lack of, and the lack of water. What went wrong here? What went wrong here? So, Miriam. It was in Miriam's chus that we had the be'er. Torah tells us back in Shmos, Perik Beis Pasuk Dalad, that we had the be'er. We had this uh, this well, and the well that traveled and journeyed with the Jewish people as our unlimited water source was in the merit of Miriam. And when Miriam died, there went the water source, and that's why it's exactly after her death that we have them complaining about the water. Why was the Be'er specifically chosen in the merit of Miriam? So Rabbeinu Bachia has a beautiful interpretation. Rabbeinu Bachia, Rabbeinu Bachia, however you pronounce his name, different traditions. Rabbeinu Bachia says that um, Miriam was responsible for the survival of the Jewish people. Why? Because Moshe was, the parents didn't want to have another child. And they had another child. And it was time to get rid of Moshe because Paro was going to hunt him down. And Miriam was the one who said, put him in the river. Let him float in the Nile. And Miriam is the one who stood by the river and watched. And Miriam is the one who convinced the daughter of Paro that uh, her mother could be the, the one to nurse him. So since Miriam performed this incredible chesed that ensured the survival of the Jewish people at a body of water, in her merit, we always had a body of water. I saw a second beautiful explanation. We know there's the connection between Shiduchim at the Be'er. There's always marriage, Shiduchim at the well. Moshe meets his wife at the well. Yitzchak and Rivka at the well. Yaakov and Rachel at the, at the well. Miriam, who reintroduced her mother and father and convinced her mother to beautify herself and her father to reunite with her mother. So Miriam was the shadchan of her own parents, so to say, in their second go-around. It was in her merit that we had, that we had water. Now, there's a very interesting halacha, a little bit of an obscure halacha, and we learn it from here. Shulchan Aruch in Yeridea Simen Shem Lamentes writes, there's a halacha that when a person passes away, when a person dies, we pour out any water that's in their house and that is in the three houses adjacent to that person. Do we keep this today? Do we not keep this today? Does it mean any water, even if it's closed or only uncovered water, like in a cup as opposed to a sealed bottle? Forget the exact application of the halacha today. But the Shulchan Aruch, this is not Hibijibi, Goldberg didn't make this up. This is Shulchan Aruch, Yeredea Shin Lamites, that when a person dies in a home, you have to pour out all the water in that house and in three adjacent houses. Why? There are two reasons which are offered. The Shach writes there, quote, Sheyedu Mikra because we don't like to be, we're not supposed to like to be, the bearer of bad news. Unfortunately, many people love to share the bad news. We're not supposed to want to be the bearer of bad news. So rather than have to announce, don't send out an email, all of a sudden you see that in that house, everybody's spilling out the water into the street, into the sewer. It must be that that person passed away. So in order to have to, to avoid sharing bad news, says the Shach, that's why they, they have this tradition of pouring out the water. A second reason he gives is, The Malach HaMavis cleans off his bloody sword in the closest water. So as not to ingest that bloody water, we pour out any water that's there. How do we know this halacha? Where does this halacha come from? It seems to be a little bit
bit of a bizarre halacha, a mystical halacha. Is this true also on Shabbos? Is it true in a hospital? Do we do it in our time? There's a lot of halachic literature about this halacha. Again, Shulchan Aruch Yerdea and Taz. So the... Um, the Be'er Gola writes in the name of the Avudraham that a hint to this halacha is from where? It's from our Pasha. Why? Because Miriam dies, and immediately the next Pasuk they say, we're thirsty. Now the question is, didn't they have a little bit of water left? When Miriam died, it meant that the water source was not renewed, but didn't they have some water left in her merit? So the water source is not renewed, so the next day or the next week or the next month, complain and kvetch that you ran out of water. Why'd they complain and kvetch immediately? Says the Avudraham, they complain and they kvetch immediately. You know why? Whatever water was left had to be spilled out. Because the halacha is when someone passes away, the water has to be spilled out. So whatever was left had to be spilled out, and since it was spilled out, since it was spilled out, uh, that's why they had no water. They complained right away. We know as a result of this episode, we're not going to go through it right now. I want to get to Parshas Balak for a few minutes. We know that as a result of this episode, um, they're not allowed to enter. Moshe davens to enter. Vaschanan, 515 times he davens. Why doesn't Aaron ever daven to enter the land? Aaron is part of this, and in our Parsha, Aaron dies. Tragically, it's so sad, Aaron dies. Why wasn't Aaron part of this prayer? Why didn't Aaron ever die to come in? So the Miam Lawei says, Why did Moshe want to enter Eretz Israel? Because he wanted to play golf in Caesarea? He wanted to swim and lounge at the King David Lounge? Why did Moshe want to get in? He wanted the all-you-can-eat, uh, what's that great restaurant when you turn it over red and green? Do you want more? Do you not want more? All-you-can-eat, uh, I forgot the name. I already haven't been to Eretz in a few months, and that's it. Why did Moshe want to go in? Because he wanted to perform the mitzvahs that are only in Eretz Yisrael. So Moshe was desperate. He davened, Hashem, let me in. I want to perform the mitzvahs you can only do there. Why didn't Aaron Davin, says the Miam Lawais? Because you know what mitzvahs Aaron would have merited there? The Matnas Kahuna. He would have received from the people. And so that Aaron didn't want to look like he was entitled, or that he was trying to take, or that he was uh, wanted to get into Israel so that he would have more, therefore he didn't even Davin to come in. That is the explanation of the Miam Lawais. I want to share with you, because I think it's a little bit timely, and these are the partial perspectives for today. There is a fast day associated with the Friday of Parshas Chukas. By a show of hands, how many of you are going to fast this Friday? How many of you have ever heard of the fact that there's a fast day this Friday? Shavasa Batamas, you heard of. It's coming up, the 17th of Tammuz. But did you know there's a fast day this Friday? It's quoted by the Magan Avram. Magan Avram references this, uh, this uh, fast day. What is the notion of this fast day? Where does it come from? What's it really all about? So the Magan Avram explains it's worthwhile for every Jew to cry for the burning of the Torah. And he tells us a customary annual fast for this reason. Erev Shabbos, Parshas Chukas. It's very unusual. Our fast days all are associated or correlated with a date on the calendar. Not with a Parsha. Shivasar Betamos. Tisha Ba'av. Asara Beteves. Yom Kippur is the 10th of Tishrei. Why do we have a fast day that's associated with a Parsha, with a day, rather than with, rather than with a, a date on the calendar? So the Magen Avram tells us the reason. He says, on that day in the year 1242, on the Friday of Erev Parshas Chukas, in the year 1242, 20 wagon loads... There's another version that says 24 wagon loads of Gemara and of Talmudic literature, including many of the works of the Balayatosvos that we've never recovered, were burned in Paris by agents of the church by King Louis IX. And the pretext was this uh, disputation, a public debate between an apostate monk and several of the leading rabbanim of France. And the verdict came out, although it was a foregone conclusion, even before the verdict was reached. And, uh, and in 1242, these 20 or 24 wagon loads of manuscripts, handwritten, were burned never to be replaced. Now remember, 200 years before the printing press was invented, these, these 
manuscripts were priceless. They were, they were critically important in the transmission of our Torah Shabbat And it was considered such an enormous loss for Klai Yisrael. We all know that the Marami Rutenberg, the last of the Baleatosvos, who was an eyewitness to this, the edict of King Louis IX, in fact composed a kina that we recite Tisha B'Av morning. <clears throat> when we sit on the ground, we recite the kina of Sha'ali Srufa Be'ish, and it's part of our kinos, kina number 41. Commemorates this episode that happened on the Friday, Erev Parshas Chukas in 1242. 20 or 24 wagon loads were, were burnt. And the Magan Avram therefore says that we should commemorate that loss was so severe, so significant, so deep. The great rabbis at the time instituted a, a fast. And they said, why did this happen? They tried to understand it. They tried to make sense of it. And they looked at our Parsha. And they said, Dagzeras Oraisa. This is a gzera of Hashem. We quoted earlier Rashi. Zos chukas This is a gzera of Hashem. The Targum, uh, at the opening Pasuk, Zos, zos chukas the Targum Unklus translates it as, Zos chukas is, Da gzeras oraisa. This is the will of Hashem. We don't understand it. We know that years later, and this is more for Tisha B'Av morning, hopefully we won't have to say Kinos this year, we'll have Geula, but we know that one of the students of Rabbeinu Yonah, who was an eyewitness also, thought maybe this was Hashem's payback. They had burned the books of the Rambam. They thought the Rambam was a heretic. They burned the books of the Rambam. Maybe Hashem did this as divine retribution. They tried to make sense of it. And there's a whole history to this. The Magan of Ram offers another reason for fasting that Friday. He says, this day, Erev Shabbos Chukas, Two cities were decimated as part of the Xeras Tachvetat, the Cossack massacres um, by Chmelnitsky in 1648-1649, recorded by the Shach. So the Magen Avram has these two reasons, either because of, um, because of King Louis IX or because of the Xeras Tachvetat, the Chmelnitsky rebellion, and so many people died. We therefore have this custom of fasting on the Friday Erev Parshas Chukas. Why am I raising it? Because it's Parshas Chukas. I'm also raising it for another reason which is, there was an article in the forward that quoted this, although you don't see this movement in mass. If we're going to start taking down statues and we're choosing to whitewash and cleanse history, I'm not weighing in, this is a partial class, apolitical, whether we should or shouldn't, then it's time to change the name of the city, St. Louis. Because the city, St. Louis, is named for that king who burned 24 wagon loads of our Talmud, who killed Jews, and by the way, who killed Muslims in the crusade to go to Jerusalem. So, interestingly, the movement to change the name of the city, St. Louis, is not being led by Jews who embrace the Talmud. It's not the learners of the Dafyomi around the world. It's the Muslim community who are saying, if we're going to start cleansing history and taking statues and changing names, it's time to change the name of the city of St. Louis. The church has responded. No, it's true he made some mistakes, but he was a very good and gracious uh, person. He was sainted, and therefore we keep his name St. Louis. Anyway, it's an interesting footnote to history, relevant to our history, connected to Parshas Chukas, because it was in Parshas Chukas that this episode, tragic, tragic episode happened. Okay. Um, so much more I wanted to talk about in our Parsha, but let's move over to Parshas Balak, which we also read this week. Perchav Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis. Perchav Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis. Ay, a few minutes left. What do we do? Perichav Beis, Pasukid Beis. Bilam comes. Bilam is this wicked, evil uh, prophet on par with Moshe, so great that he comes to Balak and he tries to recruit him to come curse the Jewish people. And Hashem says to him, we're on page 858. Don't curse the people because they are blessed. Don't try to curse them. 
What's going on over here? So Rav Druk, Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, in the Sefer Ish Tamid wonders, and he says the following. He says, Why was HaKadosh Baruch Hu so adamant that Bilam couldn't go? Why not Bilam go? And Hashem, you're in charge of the world. So let him go, let him go, and uh, whatever Bilam says, you won't make it come true. He'll go, he'll try to curse, and you'll turn it into a blessing, which is in fact what happened in the end. So why does he first hesitate and say you can't go? What do we care if he curses, if his curse is meaningless? Hashem is the one who protects us from curses. Which would have been the greater Kiddush Hashem? If he didn't go, or if he went and tried to curse him, and nevertheless was unsuccessful in the curse? It would have been a bigger Kiddush Hashem if he went and tried to curse him, was unsuccessful. So why did we, why did we hesitate? Why don't we let him go? So it says Rav Druk, Kaddish Baruch didn't want it on the books that there was a prophet who cursed the Jewish people. Because fast forward to Erev Parshas Chukas 12.42. Fast forward to the 17th century Kamal Niki. Fast forward to a time the Jewish people would suffer and our adversaries and enemies would point back and say, you know why? You know what's bringing them down? Because on the books is a curse from Bilam. So Hashem said, I don't want to curse anyone near my people. And maybe that's why at first he said, no, you can't go. But another reason. Second reason of Druk gives is because he says, it's true. The curse of this wicked man would be meaningless. And the people would be protected from it. You had nothing to worry about. And yet, nevertheless, Hashem says, if you love someone, you can't tolerate hearing them cursed out even if the curse is not going to negatively impact them. But if you love them, you cannot and you will not tolerate somebody speaking about them in that way. When we have people around us that we love, you know, sometimes there's a person acting out, but the real more egregious violators are not the ones who are cursing, it's the general public who sit there apathetically, quietly, and therefore become accomplices. Because if you really love somebody, you can't tolerate someone else cursing them out. Kodesh Baruch Hu couldn't tolerate it, and therefore he intervenes and intercedes, even though it seems like it wouldn't really be necessary. He then says, Rav Druk, on the next Pasuk, Don't go. Kodesh Baruch Hu came in the night, and the girl of Chabo and Hashim, they've come, and so on and so forth. So, how did Kodesh Baruch Hu go back? First he said, And now he says, So, isn't Hashem going back on his word? What happened? Whatever his original hesitation was, why does he give in in the end? So the Gra, the Vilna Gonim, his Kol gives an answer. And he says, notice there's a change in word. Be sensitive to the text. And notice there's a change in words. And what's the change in words? He goes from Lo Imahem to Kum Itam. What's the difference? Imahem means when you're aligned with them and their interest. Imahem means don't go with them where you become one of them. Itam means to just physically be alongside them. But to physically be alongside them is different than to go with them and among them. And that's what changed. And that's why the Gra traces this and Rav Druk expands upon it. And he says, we have the episode when Hashem, Shvulachem po im hachamor, am hadom lachamor. Because it says im, not es hachamor, that's what we learn from im. The difference between the word im and itam, from the difference in those words, you can apply that in several other places as well. Look in the Sefer Eish Tamed, Rav Druk applies it in other places as well. Okay, we have a couple minutes left, I just want to bring to your attention a couple more quick, beautiful, inspiring ideas. I guess the beauty of learning virtually is you drop out and I'm not insulted, so you'll go when you have to, but just give me a few more minutes if you're able to stay. Perach of Beis, Pasuk Mem Aleph. Chav Beis. Mem Aleph. 
back and forth and back and forth, and he goes in the donkey, and this is no ordinary donkey. He had a very special, intimate, inappropriate relationship with this donkey. Perach of Beis, Pasuk Mem Aleph. Finally, there, Bilam has successfully gotten Balak to where he's going to curse him, and he brings him on top of the mountain. And from his perspective, from his perch on top of the mountain, Bilam is going to look down and issue and offer this curse. He goes on top of the mountain, the heights of Baal, and from there he sees the people and gives a curse. And then Ramban makes an incredible comment here. We don't have time. I'm not going to read you the Ramban inside, but I encourage you to look at this Ramban. And you know what the Ramban says about this? He says, Why did Bilam have to come all together? Send Bilam a telegram and let Bilagram, let Bilagram, let Bilam curse the people from his home office, from quarantine, from seclusion. Why couldn't Bilam have been buckled down and Bullock would send him a text, send him a WhatsApp, send him an email, and from his home office, why couldn't he, from the safety of his home office, why does he have to come all the way to Moab, and why does he have to climb on top of the mountain and look down at the people in order to be able to curse them? What's going on over here? So says the Ramban, you know why? Balak led Bilam to a place where he'd see with his own eyes because a person is deeply affected by what they see with their own eyes. When you see with your own eyes, when you see, when you connect, when you observe, you are much more connected with something that you just hear about. You see this when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu as well. Because we know when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, Amalek comes out to greet them, and Yoshua gathers, gathers a, people, a group of people to fight. And while Yoshua is leading the people fighting, Moshe goes where? On top of the mountain to Davin. When he lifts his hands, they win, and when he lowers his hands, they lose. But where does Moshe go to Davin? He goes on top of the mountain much like Bilam here goes on top of the mountain. And the Ramban there too, Shmos Yudzayin Pasuk Tes, the Ramban there too says, Moshe, can't he just lie in his own bed, sit in his own comforter? Why does Moshe have to get up out of his massage chair and go to the top of a mountain to daven for them? Why can't he daven from the convenience of wherever he was? And the Ramban says the same thing over there. Because Moshe's tefillahs are going to be much more heartfelt, much more genuine, much more potent, much more effective when he's looking down at Klal Yisrael. When we see, when we connect. Why am I sharing this Ramban with you? It's a Ramban in two places, I think very powerful Ramban. Because it's one of the great fears that I have. When this pandemic is over, and it will be over, Make no mistake, it will end. We will please God have a vaccine or we'll have a antibody formula and uh, combination and it's gonna be over. We're gonna come back. Hopefully it will happen soon. I hope, I hope that you're not all gonna be watching and listening to me on Zoom or Facebook or YouTube. Again, if you don't live here and you can't come here, I hope you'll be in a room and we can feel the energy of being together and we can look at each other with our, with our four eyes and connect in the way that we're meant to connect because that's the message of the Ramban here. The Ramban is telling us that Bilam had to see the people. Moshe had to look at them when he davened for them. We have to be able to be experience one another together, not just to see across technology, not just to see across cyberspace, but to see physically, to be together physically. And it's one of the things that I worry about and that I hope and that I pray that when this ends and we can turn it around, one of the things that we can capture and we can continue to do uh, going forward is to recover that ability to be together and to be able to put eyes on one another, just like that was part of the power of Bilam's effort to curse and it's part of the power, Lahavdil, of Moshe's ability to daven. I wanted to tell you about Matovu, Lohibit Avon Biakov. In Orachayim Hakadosh, Kedush Levi, about Shem Tov, I didn't even tell you one Imre Chaim today. How could you not even share one Imre Chaim? One Imre Chaim. Okay, we'll just close with one Imre Chaim. Can't end without an Imre Chaim. The vision of Tzarebbe. The Imre Chaim tells us we know that when the people suffered a plague, 
the symbol of the AMA, the American Medical Association, is the snake wrapped around the staff. Where did that come from? Our Parsha. When the people made a mistake and they were struck with the plague, they recovered from the snakes biting them by looking at the snake. And that's how they recovered. So the Torah says, Asei l'chasraf, you have to make a snake. Perak chaf alaf, pasach ches. Chaf alaf, ches. It's back in Chukas. Vayom Hashem HaMosha Asei l'chasraf, v'sim asu alanes, v'yelakol adnushuch v'rasu v'chai. Make an image of a snake, a fiery serpent, put it on a pole. Anyone who was bitten by a snake will look at this image and will live. Says the Vishnitzer, Whatever you do, Whatever you do, be on fire when you do it. Make for yourself a fire. Be on fire. Whatever we're doing, we have to do on fire. The Gemara Shabbos says, Shabbos says, A person who's accustomed to be by the fire, We'll have children who are on fire. The Shem Yishmur, the Sachet Shavar says, what does it mean, Haraga Bener? It means if you're on fire and you're a model for others, then it'll be contagious. Others will be on fire too. And give us all a bracha. We should be safe from snakes and from plagues. We should be able to be in the presence of one another, to put eyes on one another, and that we should, Amir Tashem, live our lives. Metabren, we should be on fire, passionate, excited in all that we do. Thank the OU again. Thank you to our cats as our wonderful sponsors. And Amir Tashem will pick up next time. Have a wonderful and a safe health and holy day.